There are a lot of things that matter to me. Family, community, culture, and peace of mind. Hi, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and when balancing life, I have to say nothing brings more comfort than having support. And when it comes to ensuring those things that matter to you the most, State Farm offers the support with an agent available in person or on the phone to discuss your coverage options. Support when you need it, however you choose. That's State Farm's way. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains scenes of graphic violence that may be too explicit for some of our more sensitive listeners. Last season on Transportista, we learned about the twisted connections between the worlds of narcos and politics from a man who had spent years as a pilot for the cartel. This season, we'll look at another side of the dark world of drug trafficking and corruption. We'll tell another story set in another country, but some of the themes will remain the same. It's a story told by a man who lost the thing he loved most in the world, his father, and he won't rest until he's found justice. You just heard an archival clip of Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria, one of the most feared narcobosses in the history of Colombia and of all of the world. A man who practically turned his country and the world upside down. He was known for threatening his enemies over the phone, just like you heard in this tape. Whether it was a cop, a former colleague, a member of Congress. Escobar was a man with many faces, a chameleon. He presented himself as a simple man, claiming to do the work he did to help other everyday people like himself. But he also had a sinister, brutal side, which unleashed the rampant violence that plagued Colombia for much of the 1980s. After spending more than 10 years as a fugitive, he turned himself in, but on the condition he would stay at the prison built by those associated with his criminal organization. When he escaped in July 1992, his reign of terror began again, full of shootings, extortions, car bombs and kidnappings. Almost all Colombians were victims, in one way or another, of the brutality unleashed by Escobar. But the violence especially affected the Paisas, or the inhabitants of Medellin. It was an all-out war, 
in which both sides, the drug traffickers and law enforcement, committed crimes and abused their power. Escobar's favorite weapon was perhaps the most dangerous, bombs. The paisas got used to the sound of explosives going off. I witnessed almost all the acts of violence from the car bombs that exploded in Medellin. One of the bombings was so cruel, it still brings tears to my eyes. This is Rodrigo Martinez, a local Medellin journalist at Caracol, one of the most watched newscasts in Colombia. He covered judicial and police stories in the city from 1986 to 1994. I was working on a report based on a transmission from the Metropolitan Police. And when I returned to the radio station where I worked, which was called Caracol Radio, a car bomb exploded, and I saw a kind of mushroom rise up, as if it were an atomic bomb. Arriving at the scene was horrible. I tried to help the people who were in cars, but almost all of them were lit on fire like human torches. To his astonishment, Rodrigo found himself paralyzed barely managing to run to safety. There was a child who was burning. Since I couldn't get him out quickly, I closed the door and they shot me. A bullet from a rifle whizzed by my head and I don't know how it didn't kill me. I went to the fire station that is next door and they showed me a torso, a woman's torso, completely turned to pieces, a body, and it turned out to be my partner from Caracol. I started crying and screaming because we were very close friends. I left screaming. The news program was on Caracol, and they put me on a live microphone. I was on the air, and what came out was everything. All my screams, my crying, my sadness. All that was heard by the whole world. With the founding of the Medellin cartel in 1976 and the rise of Pablo Escobar's violent drug trade, it was the people of Colombia who paid the price, with their country being torn apart. Pablo Escobar carried out more than 623 attacks, and it's believed that he was responsible for more than 100 bombs between September and December of 1989, one of the most violent periods in Colombian history. Between 1990 and 1993, Medellin was one of the most violent cities in the world. Its population was traumatized, its government divided, its memory I was left in tears, crying, given the news of the death of my partner, which is... I know that journalism has already forgotten it, but I will never forget it. With this painful avalanche of human loss, it seemed that the stories and the memories of the many victims had blurred together, with individuals turning into a statistic. According to data from the National Police in Colombia, there were over 15,000 deaths due to narco-violence between 1984 and 1993. Many of these people were killed by the actions of Pablo Escobar, but the damage was not limited to fatalities. The war left scars that are still present in a large part of the Colombian population. Others were crippled, and no one has acknowledged anything to them. No one has paid them damages. There are people who have lost their sight, who have lost their mobility, all victims of the war with Pablo Escobar. 
and no one, no one has come to tell them, we're going to help you. It was a very hard time, where for me, both sides went crazy. They did whatever they wanted, and the important thing was, it was just to show strength on both sides. Two sides, criminals and law enforcement, in a battle to control the country. In the middle, a city full of innocent people. The result? Thousands of victims, like Miriam Nasa de Sampaio, Rodrigo Martinez's colleague, or many of the other forgotten victims who tried to help their country by reporting on the terror around them, or the ones who were completely innocent, just trying to survive in the midst of chaos. The memory of this conflict is still present. The wounds are still open. Colombia is still a country in mourning. Decades after the daily terrors caused by Escobar and his cartel, the Colombian government and the countless victims have made an effort to tell the story of what really happened. In June 2022, the Truth Commission published their final report, revealing to the entire world the details of the deadly conflict they'd been living with for over 60 years, with almost absolute impunity. However, more and more, the victims continue to raise their voices, speaking their truths and beginning the process of healing. My name is Álvaro Céspedes, and I'm a Mexican journalist. My work has taken me to cover armed conflict in different parts of Latin America. I've been a witness to how violence has destroyed families, how, with that pain, the social fabric of society that keeps people together has begun to fray. In this podcast, we'll hear the story of Beto Coral, a Colombian man seeking justice for his father, Captain Humberto Coral Caballero, ex-official of the National Police of Colombia. Now that I know him better, I know for sure what he did and what he didn't do. I remember him as my dad, not as a hero. Beto Coral has spent almost 30 years searching to find justice for the assassination of his father. Today, he lives in the United States, where he is waiting to be granted asylum. My full name is Franklin Humberto Coral Garrido. I am from Colombia. I was born in Medellin in 86. I am a political activist, a defender of human rights. I am the son of police captain Humberto Coral Caballero, an officer who was murdered after he participated in the final operation against Pablo Escobar on December 2, 1993. Beto's father, Captain Humberto Coral Caballero, has remained relatively unknown, like many victims of the drug wars in Colombia. My dad is a martyr who gave his life for a senseless war. The murder of Captain Coral, to this day an unsolved crime, might seem like just another death among the thousands who lost their lives in the violence that plagued Colombia in the 1990s. At least 500 police officers were killed between 1989 and 1992. But his murder is representative for so much more. It shows us the inner workings and schemes of a government corrupted by drug trafficking and paramilitary forces. It reveals a government obsessed with hiding their mistakes and lies. And it dives into the political limbo of impunity for a war that has caused a deep pain in Colombian society. This is Transportista. Who Murdered Captain Coral? Episode 1. The Two Deaths. More after the break. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, 
and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama. And when reflecting on what matters most, I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of Michael Tuda Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tuda shows wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beto Coral's story took me to Colombia, where the shadow of armed conflict still looms over its vast territory. The country is larger than the states of California and Nevada combined, with a population of over 52 million people. There I met Diego Olivares, a journalist and a key producer for this series. As we were talking, he said something that struck me. This is a country of bombs. In the decade of the 80s in Colombia, the reality was very convulsive. The armed conflict in Colombia didn't start with Pablo Escobar and his cartel. The violence had begun decades earlier, in the late 1950s, and had continued to grow as different political parties fought for control. By the 1980s, there were not only drug cartels and politicians fighting for power, but also guerrilla groups such as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, and the National Liberation Army, or ELN. All these groups violently fought to control the drug trade, political power, and territory. Against this backdrop, there was the deadly combination of various groups that were operating outside the law. The government was convinced this had to stop. 
Well, Escobar's war, it was a war that he unleashed against the state. This is Jorge Lesmes. He was a reporter and then an editor for the award-winning investigative news magazine Semana. And then the administration of President Gaviria began. He sought to form an elite group that would dedicate itself solely and exclusively to the persecution of Pablo Escobar. President César Gaviria was a member of the Liberal Party, whose administration was focused on bringing an end to the drug cartels that were pretty much running the country. He would be president from 1990 to 1994, and during his presidency, a new constitution was adopted in 1991. After barely escaping death from a plane explosion carried out by Escobar, President Gaviria pulled together an elite group which he named the Search Bloc. Their mission? To find Pablo Escobar, dead or alive. I had the opportunity to see their headquarters. The officers worked 24 hours, even in the dormitories. You would go in, and all the walls were filled with posters of Pablo Escobar, in all the possible disguises that they could find him in. With a beard, without a beard, with a wig, without a wig, fat, skinny, with glasses, without glasses, from behind, from the front. They developed a model for every possibility. In other words, in the search block they ate, slept, and breathed Pablo Escobar. All the time. This was the first organized group of its kind, designed with the sole intention of capturing Escobar. This group received support from the DEA and the FBI. It was made up of over 500 men and women, including police, military, and intelligence agents. It also included Captain Humberto Coral. Being a part of this task force was an especially dangerous job. No se les olvide que Escobar había don't forget that Escobar had opened a frontal war against the police, especially in Medellín. At that time, Escobar paid two million pesos for each police officer that the people, the hitmen, killed. That would be the equivalent of around $5,000 today. But Humberto Coral was not just another policeman. He had incorruptible professional morals, a rarity at the time when many were fighting for power, and he was loved by everyone who knew him. There is no person who had met him and did not fall in love with my dad. I mean, it was something incredible. My favorite actor since I was a child was Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I said my dad was just the same since they sold him the same way they sold Van Damme in the movies. He was charismatic, tough, a womanizer, a comedian, a clown, and a hero. This Colombian Jean-Claude Van Damme had a specialty that made him stand out among his peers. Coral era un alto oficial, digamos, en el sentido de, de su capacidad operativa. Coral was a high official in the sense of his operational capacity. He was an expert on the subject of electronics, and he was a key guy in the search for Escobar. Remember that at a time, there were no cell phones. There were no social networks. They operated through pagers, which were like the most sophisticated thing there was at that time. Today, some of these technologies might seem outdated, but Captain Coral and his colleagues were able to triangulate telephone frequencies to locate the fugitives they were hunting. Remember, they were not only after Escobar, but also after his organization, which was his entire hitman structure. 
Captain Coral and his team operated under extreme pressure and threats. The officers had to leave their families in other cities to avoid extortion or putting them at risk. The Coral family moved to Ibagué, a small city about 250 miles from Medellín, where Captain Coral remained living. Throughout all of 1993, we did not see my father because they called him to join the search block in January 1993. The officers who belonged to that special unit throughout the year were not given a single day's leave to see their families. Beto didn't see his father for nearly a year, but they were finally reunited after December 2, 1993. Este es el cadáver de Pablo Escobar, muerto hoy en la ciudad de Medellín. También fue abatido esta noche Gustavo Gaviria Restrepo, primo hermano de Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar had been shot down by members of the search block. The months of diligently working and patiently waiting that eventually led to Escobar's capture and death were made possible by the work of Captain Coral and his fellow electronics specialists. That day, December 2, forever marked all Colombians who lived through it. They may remember it differently, but it remains a clear marker of a before and an after. Ese día para mí es como yo preguntarte a ti qué estabas haciendo el 11 de septiembre del año 2001. That day for me is like me asking you, what were you doing on September 11, 2001? Everybody knows what he was doing that day. I think my mom was buying some sheets and clothes. My mother was there with a friend who left buying things on credit. What I remember is the extra, extra, extra radio in Medellín saying Pablo Escobar Gaviria has just been shut down. Escobar fue muerto cuando intentaba huir al cerco impuesto por el bloque de búsqueda. And I remember the face, not of my mother, but of the lady she was with. She was in awe. Everyone in the mall stood completely silent. The faint search block had achieved their goal. Rodrigo Martinez, the journalist from Caracol that we heard from earlier, was at the scene to cover the news. I was supposed to go to work at 2 p.m. I arrived that day at noon because I heard something strange was going to happen. When I was at Caracol, I heard loud gunshots. At that moment, some of the radios that we had on were tuning into the La Herrera airport. They were taking phone calls from people. Out of curiosity, I began to listen to the phone calls. As we were listening, a police officer stopped talking and begins to yell. We hit the doctor himself. I already knew that the doctor was Pablo Escobar. Rodrigo Martinez approached the place where he heard the gunshots, and what he found was the body of Pablo Escobar, lying on a roof. Surrounding his body were members of the search block and people from the media. It took over 500 men and women, working around the clock for 16 months to put an end to Escobar's reign. Beto Coral remembers the role his father, Captain Coral, played within this task. My dad was one of the four officers who located the house and was one of the ones who ordered the assault group to enter. To this day, Beto keeps a file of mentions of his father in the media. I read other newspapers like El Heraldo. I listened to what Captain Humberto Coral Caballero, a man from Barranquilla who led the elite command of the search block, had to say. He explained that they tracked down and eliminated drug lord Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria. 
For his family, the death and capture of Pablo Escobar meant a glimmer of hope that Captain Coral would be back home soon. Mi papá le contaba a mi mamá que que lo iban a trasladar. My dad told my mom that they were going to transfer him, that they had already requested the transfer, that they were going to accept it. This transfer that Captain Coral requested was a call for help. It was a plea to get him out of Medellin, where his work as part of the search block put him in imminent danger, now that the remnants of the cartel sought to avenge their fallen leader. For the months of December, January and February, he did not see us. When he went on vacation in February, he went to Barranquilla first to see my grandmother and he was happy. He was happy because they were going to transfer him and he was going to leave Medellin. He was going to get out of that hell. In total, Captain Coral spent over a year without seeing his children. Early March, those were the most beautiful days of my life. I guess he spent about 15 days with me, with my sister and with my mom. It was very nice. I fell for the first time like a family and I will never forget that. It was spectacular. It was the most beautiful thing I could have experienced and the only moment as a child that I remember with complete happiness. However, in the middle of this happy reunion, Captain Coral received news that left everyone confused. Then they told my dad, you have to come back to Medellin. We don't know why his vacation was interrupted and when he arrived in Medellin, he realized that he was the only one. There were some other officers there at the Carlos Holguín Police School which were the main headquarters of the search block in Medellin. Alone in Medellin, without his colleagues, Captain Coral feared for his life. He was an easy and valuable target for Escobar's people. He sent letters to be transferred, and the days passed. The days went by, the days went by, until they killed him. Beto's life would never be the same. More after the break. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and we're reflecting on what matters most. I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of My Cultura Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Between the deaths of Pablo Escobar and my father, four months passed, almost five. At just eight years old, Beto faced the Thursday morning that would change his life forever. I was at school at 10.30 a.m. I needed 1,000 pesos, which was like a dollar, to be able to participate in a lunch where they gave out soda and roasted chicken. And my mom didn't give us money that day. So we were like the poor children at school, in the classroom, watching the other children eat. At like 10.30 a.m., I see that lady, who is a very close friend of my mom's, and another lady who is also a friend of my mom's, arrived. Beto believed his mom's friends had come to see him and hand him the money to be able to participate in the lunch activity with his friends. But I noticed something strange. My teacher got white, 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 white. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? Anita, get your things. You're leaving. And I told her, but the teacher is not going to let me leave. The teacher was crying and said, no, go. We'll let you go. As Beto was walking towards the exit, the woman brought up his favorite movie at the time, The Lion King, which had just been released in Colombia. And the lady starts talking to me, trying to metaphorically tell me that my dad was killed. She tried to do it very well because she began to talk to me about the circle of life, just as it is mentioned in The Lion King, that beings are born, grow, reproduce, and die. And she told me that my daddy had completed that circle. I told her he continued. He was still going. After that, she told me, no, your daddy is going to be watching over you from heaven. I cried because the two ladies began to cry. But at that time, I didn't understand anything. Beto was a third grader, receiving the worst news of his life from his mother's friends on what was supposed to be a normal school day while thinking about his favorite movie. When they took me out of school, I saw my mom in a police car. I saw her sitting down, but without shoes. She was barefoot, and she was wearing a horrible dress that I didn't like as a child. It was a floral print made up of blue and green flowers. I saw her, and I didn't understand anything that was happening. She was quiet. They sat me down in the police car with her, but not next to her. 
He went to get my sister who was studying at another school, but no one said anything. The silence was interrupted as soon as they got home. Then, when we got home, mom turned on the news to see what they were saying, and indeed, the first thing that came out was that a police captain who was in charge of the operation in which Pablo Escobar died was murdered in confusing events. But they didn't say anything else. I remember the first time I heard my mom say, Why was Humberto there? Why was he there? Beto Coral grew up with these questions haunting him. What was his dad doing there? Why did they kill him? And I started looking. I started looking up how they killed him. And all I could find were inconsistencies and lies. It was the memory of my father who led me there to investigate what really happened. The investigation into Captain Coral's death involves many people, both inside and outside of Colombia. In this series, we'll dive deep into this unsolved murder set against the backdrop of a war that has yet to end. Coral became a thorn in the side for everything he had been denouncing, what was happening, and what had happened inside the storage block. There was a series of incidents and events that we saw happening, but we have yet to find an explanation, because the information about them is hidden. It's like a black box where someone or some institution has the information that we do not have but need to be able to link and understand this. In other words, why was he murdered? Is it really linked to that episode? Or was it really an isolated event? When I was 15, 16 years old, I began to wonder about the facts. They scolded me for being reckless and rash. At 18 years old, I started looking for answers anyway. They accused me of being crazy. They told me, no more, no more. Let go of the obsession. Transportista. Who Murdered Captain Coral is a production of Exile Content Studio and Detective in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Álvaro Céspedes. Production by Diego Olivares Jiménez and Álvaro Céspedes with the help of Sabine Jansen, Andrea Ceballos, Ana Isabel Octavio and Verónica Hernández. Written by Álvaro Céspedes. Edited by Carmen Graterol. Fact-checking by Samedi Aguirre. Executive producers are Rose Reed, Carmen Graterol, Isaac Lee, and Diego Enrique Osorno. Sound design by Hugo Mendoza, Pachi Quiñones, and Gonzalo Messi. Original music is by Sebastián León. Thanks to the voice actors who contributed in this episode. Beto Coral is Horacio Mancilla. Jorge Lesmes is Héctor Villagómez. Rodrigo Martínez is Gerardo Villagómez. Catalina Sánchez Escobar is Verónica Hernández. Daniel Batista oversees audio at Exile Content Studio. Our executive producers at iHeart are Giselle Vances and Arlene Santana. Research by Meño Larios and Emma Friedland. Production supervision by Julio González. Created by Diego Enrique Sorno. For more podcasts, go to the iHeart Radio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Professional wrestling. Like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, 
Let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.